Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, with continued housing challenges, Australia and the UK announced plans to cut back on immigration and international students. Why is Canada headed in the opposite direction? Plus, speed bump. Why is fuel efficiency declining in cars after decades of progress? And small business owners remain on edge as the SIBA repayment deadline fast approaches. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's talk about overpass crashes. Now, during the Christmas holiday, my cell phone went off repeatedly after a semi-trailer operated by Chahan Freight Forwarders crashed into a Highway 99 overpass uh, in Delta. Chahan Freight Forwarders have been involved in six uh, of the past uh, six of these overpass crashes in the past two years. Now, according to provincial records, that crash was the 31st overpass strike by a commercial vehicle in BC since December of 2021 and the 17th uh, in 2023 alone. Here's a reminder of some of those overpass crashes. 40 days after the last driver hit a Metro Vancouver overpass, it's happened again. It's happened one too many times across the lower mainland. An overheight truck striking an overpass causing a collision. Overpass watch! Lynch, it has been officially 80 days in the lower mainland since a vehicle struck an overpass. How's that looking? Well, we have to reset the counter at zero once again. Damn it! (laughs) <laughs> Thanks to our friends over at Seafox uh, for that uh, uh, that uh, montage uh, from earlier, uh, I guess, last week. Uh, but now let's talk a little bit about what's going to occur because of that last overpass uh, crash. BC suspended the National Safety Code Certificate of Chohan uh, Freight Forwarders, which grounds its fleet of 65 commercial vehicles in this province. Now, the company is part of a group that is also that also has a fleet in Alberta, and those vehicles continue to haul freight in BC and there lies the problem. Transportation Minister Rob Fleming has fired off a letter to the federal minister asking work be started on a unified truck safety system across the country. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, a national uh, look at trucking and what we can do to stop some of these overpass crashes. Joining me now is Dave Earl, President and CEO of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Uh, how important is this letter uh, from the Transportation Minister here in B.C. Uh, to the uh, federal counterpart? You know, Jazz, it's a really important conversation to have. I mean, we haven't revisited uh, this legislation since it was enacted back in the late 80s. And uh, you know, with the changes in how businesses operate and how industries change, uh, it's time to have that conversation and figure out if we can do it a lot better. Uh, you said late 80s. Why has it taken this long? Well, by and large, uh, it's mostly worked. I guess I, I hate using that word, but uh, it hasn't been um, you know, shown to be demonstrably broken in a lot of ways. Um, what it is, it's kind of a, a bit of a unique uh, Canadian way of doing business. It's a federal standard that is administered by provinces. Uh, and this all has to do with interprovincial relations and constitutionality and all these things that was kind of that pathway to get us where we wanted to go to um, you know, in a manner that we could achieve. But it's time to have a, a closer look at that, for sure. Is uh, These overpass crashes, are they happening in other provinces? Yes. Yes, they are, Jez. Um, there are some overpasses in some areas of, uh, of the country that are remarkably low. Like, I'm talking 3 metres, 3.5 metres. Um, and uh, these, these overpass hits uh, happen there. They happen on other overpasses. They happen all over the continent. Um, we've had a real uh, spike in activity in British Columbia. I mean, we look at it and attribute it to complacency, um, you know, and, and we simply just need to do a lot better job making sure that people understand what they need to do. When you say complacency, is this a question of, of, of a company and its uh, safety procedures? Is this about... Uh, trucking schools and what they are teaching uh, new students today. Uh, what, what do you mean by when you just say complacency? Is it more um, the owner, the the onus be put on the owner uh, of these companies, or is it more about how we train these young drivers? The the short answer is yes, and it's also the customer. Um, very often, when a carrier gets a phone call to move a load, the customer will give them dimensions, and they're inaccurate. Um, sometimes the carrier gets there with the wrong equipment and don't make the right decision to say, no, we're going to have to do a load a different day with the right equipment. 
sometimes it's safety procedures inside the company. Sometimes it's training in the driver's school. Sometimes it's training with the carrier. Uh, sometimes it's the driver saying, I just don't care, I'm going to run anyway. Uh, and that's why this is a, a difficult uh, problem to get our arms around because there are so many places to go and so many levers to pull. But frankly, Jez, we just have to figure it out and get it done. Uh, this has to stop, and we can't just keep uh, you know, saying, well, it's difficult. Lots of things are difficult. Let's fix it and get this done. Um, have other provinces had this many crashes in such a short, uh, short span like British Columbia? Yeah, I'd love to tell you, but to my knowledge, other provinces don't track them the way we do. Um, so I can't tell you one way or, or the other if there, there have been these, uh, these incidents uh, in a cluster like we've seen in British Columbia. We just don't have the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just can't tell you. Uh, how is the trucking industry administered in the United States? Is it federal regulations or the states involved as well? Again, it's complicated, but by and large, it's federal. So you have one Department of Transportation uh, number that applies, and your, your listener will see these on the sides of vehicles as they run past them. They will see DOT, that tells you it's a truck that has a number to run in the United States. You'll also see NSC, that's the National Safety Code for Canada, that allows them to run in Canada. Um, it's a really complicated regime, but by and large, Jazz, it's a federally regulated system in the United States. Um, trucking, I'm going to assume, is like many industries. You've got baby boomers retiring, and with them uh, goes experience and institutional knowledge, uh, and you've got a young drivers coming in. And look, most young drivers are going to be just fine if they work hard and listen and learn. Um, but how much of this is just a generational change where perhaps uh, it's something we are, we, are, we are seeing and going to have to look at because you have young drivers coming in, they just don't have the experience, and we've seen this occur and things over the next few years hopefully will get better because of this, but ultimately this is also part of a, just a generational change and a generational shift. I, I don't know if I can attribute it to that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Jazz, the overpasses haven't moved. The law hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not uh, super complicated stuff. Measure your load. Um, you know, this is something that has to be brought into the culture and how the industry operates. It's more than training in schools uh, it's more than just, uh, you know, rolling along the highway and uh, trying to figure out where you're going. There's a lot more to it, and there has to be this this real fundamental shift, I suppose, um, that we're focusing on the professionalism of the industry. Um, and that, that starts, uh, you know, with the carriers and, and with the drivers. Um, do we need to toughen penalties even more than, than what the minister uh, had argued for and they've brought in now? Do we need even tougher penalties? You know, Jez, it's harder to it's hard to conceive what those tougher penalties may be. Um, honestly, I mean, yes, we can we can have more fines. You can add a zero or two zeros to the end of it. Um, you know, but right now, I mean, the the maximum penalty that a, you know, an entity can provide is to penalize it uh, to shut it down. I mean, and that's what the minister has done in BC, and we applaud them for doing that. Um, even if there were extraordinary fines. Um, that nothing would prevent the organization from folding up shop and moving to a different organi- a different jurisdiction anyway. Um, this is why that conversation about a, a national system uh, to, to regulate um, and manage this issue is so very, very important. We don't want to have uh, cross-jurisdictional issues like we're having currently and simply just adding more and more to the front-end fine. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that may provide a little bit more of a deterrent, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, we look at the ability to suspend operations is what we really want to see, and we want to see that apply uh, more vigorously in different jurisdictions. How confident are you the federal government is willing to work with the provinces on this? I mean, do they see it as a real issue, and you think they'll be able to sort of close, close some of these uh, loopholes and some of these changes that need to be made that they'll actually be doing them? Oh, yeah, and I have a very good confidence in Minister Rodriguez and the federal government and their appetite to address this issue, uh, but it's not just them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the federal government, 10 provinces, uh, that all have to come to an agreement. And as anybody uh, knows who you know, looks at Canadian history and legislation, um, that's a very, very tall order. But uh, it doesn't mean it can't happen and doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it. So to clarify here, the challenge is that uh, safety cert- certificates are issued by the jurisdiction where the there is a license plate for that truck. But some of these companies are in different provinces, so there's no one 
sort of single authority that's responsible for the oversight on that carrier company. Is that the biggest concern then? Correct, Jess. And I mean, when you think about it, this is part of our supply chain right across the country. I mean, your listener will see uh, you know, trucks plated from various jurisdictions all over North America running in British Columbia. And that's what we have to balance is trying to find the way that we can make sure that enforcement action balances our need to enforce and have safe roads for everyone to use against the ability for companies to operate within the context of a North America-wide integrated supply chain. So, um, so it, it's a hard nut to crack. So if there is a company uh, that head office is, let's say, in, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but has had, had overpasses mm-hmm. here in British Columbia, you can shut down those two trucks, but that company is still moving around and has the same safety processes and procedures for other provinces. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. You can shut down their operations there for trucks that are registered in British Columbia, mm-hmm. but you can't do it for other jurisdictions across North America. I mean, even when we move into a Canadian system, Jasmine, then the next question becomes, well, what do we do if it's a truck from Missouri? Um, like I said, it, it's a complicated issue. And the core issue, it's, it's not enforcement. It's changing that whole movement in the industry to recognize this is a profession that you have to take seriously and be diligent when it comes to safety. And just to confirm, right, so far, all the accidents that I know of, the vehicles have all been Canadian registered vehicles, have they not? Yes. Yes, yes they have. So no one from Missouri, yep. but, you, but you're, I get not your point. Yet. Nope, <laughs> and, and may, may we never have that conversation, Jess. <laughs> that is true. And I know you're tired of hearing these stories and commenting on them, but I think it's a, a very legitimate issue, and, 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 I know, and I know you in the industry believe it is as well. So I do appreciate your time oh, absolutely. talking to us about this today. Dave, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jess. Last month, Australia said it would tighten visa rules for international students and low-skilled workers that uh, could have its migrant intake over the next two years as the government looks to overhaul what it said was a broken migration system. Now, under the new policies, international students would need to secure higher ratings on English tests, and there would be more scrutiny on a student's second visa application that would uh, prolong their stay. Now, Australia's Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, said the strategy was to bring migration numbers back to normal. Now, the decision comes after net immigration was expected to have peaked to a record 510,000 immigrants in 2022-2023. Now, official data showed it was forecast to fall to about a quarter of a million by 2024-2025 and 25-2026, roughly in line with pre-COVID levels. So 510,000 and with a new announcement down to 250,000. Ms. O'Neill said the increase in net overseas migration in 2022-2023 was mostly driven by international students. Take a listen. We are going to make sure that we bring numbers back under control, that we build a better planned system around essential things like housing, and perhaps most importantly of all, that we build a program that delivers for the national interest. Now, also in December, the United Kingdom launched a five-point plan in an attempt to slash its net migration by 300,000 from 672,000 in 2024. Uh, Like Canada, both countries are facing public pressure over housing shortages and soaring cost of living. Uh, All three countries rely on immigration. They're struggling with the the growth of immigration, but also they have a labor and skill shortage uh, in a volatile global economy. Uh, But it's interesting when you look at the policy responses from a conservative government in London, and a Labour government in Canberra. Uh, And then you look at Ottawa, and Ottawa, well, in many cases, is sticking with its plan. In Canada, despite a growing pushback on high levels of immigration, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has stayed the course to welcome 485,000 permanent residents this year and half a million in 2025. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the UK and Australia's U-turn, and Canada, I guess, continuing in the same direction, is Barge Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. Barge, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Um, first of all, your thoughts and reaction to what Australia and the UK uh, have announced uh, over basically December in regards to what they're going to do. Very different approaches in those countries compared to Canada. So they're basically saying that they're going to cut in half, 50% cut to the number of migrants coming into those two countries. Mm-hmm. Now, the way they're tracking their numbers, they're talking about 
number of migrants. That includes international students as well. In Canada, we're not talking that way. We're saying there's 485,000 immigrants. We're not really clear how many international students will come in. We're not clear how many refugees we're going to take in. So if we're using same language as those two countries are, we're probably looking at one and a half million migrants coming into the country in the next year. Hmm. Now, uh, the UK always has had housing challenges exacerbated, of course, the last few years. Uh, Australia is the same. And here in Canada, of course, we're having that same conversation. In many ways, I had a friend uh, uh, in uh, Australia over the Christmas holidays, and you know, they were literally reading the headlines of the Sydney, uh, Sydney Herald, and they could have been in the Globe and Mail or the Vancouver Sun. Why do you think we're sticking with what we're doing and we're sticking with this plan here in Canada, while our uh, allies, let's call it what they are, they're all our, our allies, with a conservative government in London, a Labour government in Canberra going, no, this is a mistake at this point. Let's reset. Yet here in Ottawa, we're going, wait a minute here, we're going to essentially do the same thing. Why do you think that is? I think in Canada, what the government is trying to do is they're banking on this so-called 22 to $32 billion that these international students are bringing in. They don't want to let go of that. What the net benefit to the GDP is, that's debatable. Our productivity is not going up. Our efficiency is not growing up, like going up. So I think it's a little bit still this focus that these students are bringing in $30 billion into our economy and we're going to take it. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand the argument that we need skilled labor in this country, perhaps focus on more economic immigrants. But I also believe that if you're a hardworking immigrant, you got two hands and you got desire, um, you can make something of yourself in this country. I think that's what this country has actually been built on, whether it's the first wave of European immigrants, Asian immigrants, African immigrants, Middle Eastern immigrants. It doesn't matter that if there's a desire to do well, you will do well and you will work hard. Um, so I think there should be room for those types of immigrants. I think that's what Canada was built on. Um, but when you look at what we're seeing now, what do you say to that argument that, wait a minute, these students that we have here, if they work hard, they will be a net benefit for Canada over the long term. You don't buy that? Or do you think it's just a question of we're just too reliant on that type of migrant? Well, what we're really looking at is all the international students that we've had in the country going back last 10 years, less than 30% actually end up becoming permanent residents. There is not a clear pathway for vast majority of international students to become permanent residents. Therefore, they're here for a period of time. They contribute to uh, uh, tuition fees, to the economy, and then some end up into fraudulent activities to obtain permanent residency. So there's a lot of abuse in the system. Mm -hmm. The underground economy has really grown in the last five years. So Canada's international education policy needs a total reset. We need to revisit it. The way it is happening right now, it's not really working other than the fact that we're getting $32 billion into our economy. Is that what it is? Do you think it's this, I mean, I don't even think it's the public institution. I mean, some colleges, but certainly I don't think it's the universities and to any grand extent from the numbers I think you and I both looked at. But when you go to the private colleges, certainly the numbers are significant. But let's let's just move that even forward. If somebody moves here, in some cases, they're probably buying cars, used cars, you need housing. It seems like the entire system, everybody is making money on this. In fact, Throughout Metro Vancouver, in Ontario as well, where vast majority of the immigrants come in and international students come in, you have used car dealerships offering loans to international students to purchase cars at house rates, 24%, 26% interest rates. So the car dealers are benefiting, so everybody else benefits. So, so there's a lot of money being made. The other group that's making tons of money are so-called immigration consultants, recruiters for our institutions here in other countries or even here. So there's lots of money being made. And I really think that the federal government and our provincial governments need to take a hard look at our international education system. 
The immigration minister, the federal immigration minister was on this show and he said, look, we're going to crack down on private colleges that take advantage of some of these students. We're going to make sure that if uh, these colleges are inviting these international students, there would be uh, housing set aside or housing or at least student housing available rather than competing continuously with um, in the housing market itself. Do you buy any of that? Well, the minister did announce, in fact, he used the the term uh, puppy mills yeah. for a lot of these colleges and so on. But there was nothing substantive in that announcement what the federal government or the provincial government are going to do. So they need to step up and say, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to clean up this system. Mm-hmm. And uh, even when we talk about our public institutions, they're definitely more accountable but you look at the Langara Colleges of the world, Kwantlen Polytechnic University, they're relying quite heavily on international student fees. They're really vulnerable. So that's another reason why Canadian government does not want to reduce the number of study permits being issued because some of our community colleges, especially in Ontario and in British Columbia, would be at risk. Well, Pope Francis is calling for a global ban on surrogacy, which uh, he referred to as deplorable, a deplorable practice, and he says that it commercializes pregnancy. But some surrogacy advocates are pushing back against his comments. Joining me now is Jerry Mayer Judson to talk a little bit about what Pope Francis had to say. Oh, yes. I talked to uh, someone who is even more qualified than myself to speak about it. I talked to Cindy Wasser. She is the principal and founder of Hope Springs Fertility Law, and she's also had her two daughters via surrogacy. So I asked her first how she felt about Pope Francis's comments. Yeah, well, I'm not pleased about what he said. We have a really beautiful system for it here. And I think that, uh, yeah, he doesn't account for that. To call it what he did is just, it's appalling. So yes, I say appalled. I say my heart is heavy. Can you tell me in however much detail you wish um, that you're comfortable with about your personal experience in accessing surrogacy? Like, was it very hard? What was the law like in 2008? Has it changed? Oh, yeah. That's why I went into it, so I could change things. So I was a very high-profile criminal defense lawyer, and my husband was the manager of mutual funds at one of the big banks. We were very resourceful people, and we were banging our heads against walls trying to understand how this worked and there was there was no internet information the law had just come into place the current federal legislation was passed in 2004 and when it passed it it had you know thou shalt not uh, reimburse donors and surrogates unless it's in accordance with the regulations which they said they were working on so in 2008 when we still had no regulations i wasn't you know shocked in Still. 2020, 19 or whatever it was when we finally got them, it was like, wow, we thought about those. So our position as a criminal lawyer, my definition of thou shalt not, unless they're in accordance with the regulations, meant that thou shalt not was meaningless. So you could, because there were no regulations, therefore the prohibition was meaningless. But in order to be smart... You certainly weren't going to go around buying cars and and houses for surrogates. Mm -hmm. My first journey ended up being independent, though, because the one or two agencies that existed just didn't have anyone. And so whatever my lawyer put in the contract was, you know, what she felt was the appropriate thing. And she had been the lawyer at the time, so I went to her. My surrogate that I found independently turned out to be quite pathological. So we ended up having to do things like pay a down payment on her car. So it was things like that. She would say she canceled the doctor's appointment or it was canceled in the hopes that I wouldn't go. And I didn't believe her. So I went and sure enough, there'd be an appointment. So, you know, when Etta was born that day on December 7th in 2008, I just turned to my husband an hour after and said, no one should have to go through this. This has to change, and it will. The second, so for your second daughter, it was a surrogacy procedure, like, I'm assuming she was much less pathological, or else I'm sure you would have mentioned it. Like, you had a better nine months. Yeah, the second months. surrogate okay. was so fantastic. Okay. That was through an agency. The benefit of going through an agency, I guess, to do anything is they have regulations on deck. They can prevent exploitation on both sides. They do level things out because it's emotional 
And I even put a clause in my contracts because of my own experience that said, with 48 hours notice, the agency can come in and check. So if she's overwhelmed and too ashamed to tell the intended parents that she's not coping, the agency can go in there and say, okay, we're sending a cleaning lady. We're having food delivered, Mm -hmm. ready-made food. You know, do you want freshie, whatever? And then just say to the parents, you're paying for that and don't say a word about it. If you could snap your fingers and improve fertility slash specifically surrogacy law in the country, how would you do that? What would you do? It's two level, right? Because there's provincial law and federal. So Mm -hmm. at the provincial level, which is birth registration, I would have administrative acceptance everywhere. You are parents, just fill out paperwork. Recognizing it has to be different than the other because someone else did give birth physically. And so we have to report for vital statistics to the World Health Organization Mm -hmm. what her gestational journey was like. I understand that. So yes, so separate paperwork, but it should it should not require a court order, although that should be available for foreigners who need it in their country. So there should be absolute recognition legally that we are the parents at birth. And then at the federal level, I would do away with the prohibitions in a very general way, and I, I would have something because they need to keep their feet in it through criminal law. Otherwise, it all goes to the provinces, and I don't want that. But I would I would have something less onerous as a prohibition than, you know, not like, you know, major compensation, no $100,000 gifts. But it, it there should be a, a sort of a lump sum payment is the way I would look at it. Sir, mm-hmm. you, you know, pay your 50000 pay your 30000 and don't make them do all these receipt management things. It's too much. It's not fair. As well, the penalties for breaking the law at the federal level are not graduated. The penalty section says you could be convicted of either a summary or indictable offense. And the fine ranges from $200,000 at the summary level to 500000 at the indictable level and 10 years in prison. And there is no difference between cloning in your basement to get 10 years in prison and giving your surrogate flowers for her birthday. That's a gift. Now, nobody's going to put you in prison for that, but But formally in the law, that's what it says. They could. It's interesting. Uh, you know, I understand where the Pope is coming from in regards to the practice itself. Look, you commercialize pregnancy, especially when you look at countries like India. Uh, but one would argue, in this case, as, as Ms. Wasser has articulated very well, is that if you put rules in place, very transparent rules. Mm-hmm. That's all you got to do. Mm-hmm. Just make it plain in the law what you can and cannot do yeah. and make it, you know, sort of nothing is exploitation proof, but as exploitation proof as you can. Yes. And then I think it would be a lot less confusing and you'd have a lot fewer, maybe turbulent, crunchy instances where people do get exploited, whether that is the ex- the, the um, expectant parents or whether that is, you know, the surrogate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the response to your first question, yeah. uh, I think pretty much said everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. She had true. lots and lots to say. There's yeah. a whole statement on Hope Springs' website where they're like, well, we're appalled. You know, this is a hu- like this is a human right, and they think that uh, they're stepping on it. One step forward, two steps back. Sometimes oh, yeah. for uh, for religious institutions, Most one definitely. <laughs> we'll take the small no matter, wins that we can. No and matter then... what faith it is, it is the realities of most certainly. <laughs> Jerry, thank you. Thank you. In the U.S., gas-powered cars have stopped making big efficiency gains. I saw that headline in the Washington Post the other day. The drop in efficiency might seem puzzling at a time when the planet, of course, is shattering temperature records. And Joe Biden, and just like our Premier Prime Minister here, um, Justin Trudeau, is um, raising fuel efficiency standards, talking about uh, a clean, green economy. So what's causing all this? We often talk about fuel efficiency in vehicles, but somehow we're not making the big efficiency gains that we once did. Uh, when I read that, I said, you know what, there's one guy to call uh, to help me understand all of this. That's, of course, Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. Jeremy, welcome. Happy New Year to you. Uh, same to you. G- glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Your thoughts on this. Uh, what is causing uh, sort of the loss of these big efficiency gains that we've had in the past? Uh, well, it's not that the technology has gone backwards. In fact, there's plenty of good fuel-efficient technology, and and you can certainly load up vehicles with lighter weight materials. The problem is 85% of Canadians and an equivalent number of Americans aren't buying smaller vehicles. They're buying bigger and bigger vehicles. They're buying SUVs and pickup trucks of various sorts. And in fact, it's hard to find 
you know, your typical economy car, like a Ford Fiesta, those are long gone. So it's all about size. You just can't get away uh, from the fact that physics is physics and uh, and mass is mass. <laughs> so, and, and, and we expect this trend to continue then? I mean, we, we, I, I, look, I'll be admit right away, I drive an SUV, uh, a young kid, I play hockey, all those kinds of things, um, suburban dad, all that sort of thing. And we think we all have to deal with that stuff. You come downtown, sometimes a little tight for parking, and I understand that. But do you think that we're going to continue this trend, continue with this trend in regards to just our love affair with the SUVs will continue? Yes, we are going to continue with that trend. Uh, and not only for the reasons you've just described, but, you know, the baby boomers are still the big consumers out there. And as baby boomers get into their 60s and 70s and 80s, they don't want to climb down into a car anymore. They'd rather just slide their hips across the front seat and not have any aches and pains uh, ignited by, <laughs> by climbing into a Corvette or a Mazda 3. Uh, so, no, I don't think we're going to see that change. What we will see mm-hmm. is more electrification, uh, especially uh, with the move, not just to electric vehicles, but to more hybrids. Uh, I, I think we're seeing in the marketplace right now just a huge surge in uh, gasoline electric hybrids, which essentially cut uh, your fuel, uh, uh, your fuel use, and your carbon footprint in half compared to a vehicle of the same type and size. So, and then uh, eventually electrification. But that, as Jazz, we've talked about this before. This, you know, all these electric vehicles we're seeing, many of them are gigantic. I mean, you know, the new Hummer SUV EV has a battery the size of an old Honda Civic. Jeez. I mean, think about that. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. But but we just Americans are really, um, you know, really, really love their big vehicles. But, you know, 85 percent of Canadians are buying some sort of crossover, not necessarily a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be something like a Mazda CX-5 or a CX-3. Um, but they're still not only are they bigger, but they don't have the same aerodynamic qualities, right? They don't cut through the wind, and so you lose some of the benefits of that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading recently even just uh, uh, pedestrians being hit, and that number is going up. Partially is if you're driving a smaller vehicle, um, you have a, perhaps a better chance of, of, of not being hurt as badly as opposed to an SUV, which is higher, and you're seeing sort of a, an increase in pedestrians being struck and injured a lot more um, in the U.S. than you saw in the past. That, that's partially yeah, one of the reasons. Think, think, of, think of the height of the hood in the front of the car. Mm-hmm. If you're in a Honda Civic or an old Honda Fit or a Ford Focus, that, that uh, hood height is probably below your hip length if you're an average person. If you're hit by a Tesla Model X or the new uh, Cybertruck, well, that, that's going to hit you right in the face. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, so some of that is, is the, the, just the physical size of these vehicles. They are right out there. Um, taking up your whole body, whereas with a smaller vehicle, you might roll. If, certainly, if it's a slow-moving uh, encounter with a with a vehicle, you might just roll over and get a few bumps and bruises, but it's not catastrophic. If you get hit even at a very low speed by a cyber truck, um, I think you're going to the hospital. Wow. Uh, do you think environmental groups will start honing in on the SUV? Because just based on what you've said, that this is our love affair, uh, you know, they focus on pipelines and all those types of things. But part of the reason, and I can't remember the numbers now, that SUVs, because of their popularity, play such a significant role when it comes to climate change and, and GHG emissions, uh, that can you see sort of environmentalists making this public enemy number one? Well, I mean, they might, but, you know, the, the, the really the, 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 the hardcore people like our uh, environment minister in Canada, Stephen Gilbo, um, I, I think he would just like to get rid of cars altogether. He's not really. Uh, so, so, yes, I guess you could make SUVs the poster child for excessive emissions. Um, but uh, I, I don't see that being a high priority for environmentalists. As a, I'll, I'll tell you, as a guy who ran for city council last year, the, the, the one of the loudest lobby groups that that we encountered on the campaign trail were the bike lobby 
Yeah. They don't want to see cars at all. They don't care if it's an SUV or a pickup truck or a small SUV or a Honda Fit. They'd rather you ride your bike or take transit. And it would be great if we had decent transit in the lower mainland. But as we all know, we don't. That's a work in progress. <laughs> that is for yes, sure. And I, and, I don't, and I don't doubt your comments about Americans liking their, their SUVs, big vehicles. One only has to go to the Bellingham Costco and you go, wow, you can actually park an SUV compared to some of the parking lots we have here in the lower mainland. Much easier um, in the U.S. But let's talk about another issue in the car industry which caught my eye. Um, China's overseas auto sales... Um, uh, I was reading, have surged to record numbers last year to the point where they surpassed Japan as the world's biggest car exporter. What is happening um, here? Is it is it a one-off or is this a, a tectonic shift in the in the global industry? Well, I, I think you're seeing a, a shift because um, Chinese manufacturers are superb, and especially if it's a, a commodity-like product like like a car. And and there have been restrictions placed on the uh, export of vehicles to a number of places like Russia. So where is Russia getting its cars now? They're not getting them from uh, all the American and European manufacturers have pulled out of Russia. So the Chinese have moved in and they are selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Chinese vehicles into Russia. So this is uh, and, and, and other places as well. And then there's, of course, globally, there's a huge appetite for less expensive vehicles. If you've been to India, for example, you'll know that you're not going to see a whole bunch of Teslas rolling around. You're going to see a whole bunch of other much less expensive vehicles, including little three-wheel and two-wheel ones. Mm-hmm. So the emerging markets are looking for low-cost, not fancy, commodity products um, that have four wheels and an engine. And that's where China's really good at. I mean, China makes, is, a, is a manufacturing powerhouse, and it's manufacturing a lot of goods that aren't very expensive for emerging markets. Um, I, I was also reading that uh, China's, one of their car companies, BYD, which is uh, yeah. an EV company, uh, certainly for one quarter in 2023, uh, outsold Tesla globally. Now, do you think this is a one-off and things will return to normal, or do you think this is also uh, a reminder that Tesla may not be remaining at, at number one for very long? Well, you know, I, I, I did a video uh, on my YouTube channel about Tesla versus BYD um, just oh, probably six weeks ago, maybe two months. Um, it, BYD is a super interesting company. You, you might remember that uh, one of the early investors in BYD was Warren Buffett, and he's mostly sold out his stake in BYD because he felt he'd made the most profits. But BYD is is a force to be reckoned with, and for two reasons. One, it's a very, very strong manufacturing company, but two, it's vertically integrated. BYD has lots of expertise in battery making. In fact, that's where most of uh, its business started, whereas Tesla needs to buy its batteries from a variety of suppliers. So if you ask for my prediction about which company in the world will emerge as one of the super global powerhouses in electrified vehicles, it would be BYD because they have the manufacturing capabilities and the battery technology and the capabilities of manufacturing their own batteries. BYD is a company to look for. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was looking at the numbers that the overseas sales jumped five times to 242,000 in 2023. And I think they were saying that they're going to expand their overseas showrooms in North America and in Europe. So it uh, looks like Tesla, at least beyond uh, the traditional car makers, also has uh, competition when it comes to Chinese automakers as well. So lots of lots of churn, as they say in the in the car <laughs> car business. Lots of stuff happening. And I promise you we'll be calling you lots this year because uh, we want to stay on top of it. Thank you so much uh, today, Jeremy. My pleasure. We'll talk to you again. At the 4 o'clock hour, we spent, well, 45 minutes actually talking about UK and Australia making announcements in December that they're going to cut back on immigration by 50% in 2024, 2025, uh, while here in Canada, we're essentially continuing uh, with the status quo, 485,000 immigrants expected this year, 500,000 next year, and that, of course, does not include international students at all. So it gives you a sense of, of uh, the f- tremendous growth uh, when it comes to our population here in Canada. And, of course, the destinations, one of the key destinations 
destinations for immigrants remains British Columbia. Joining me now to talk a little bit about our fast-growing population and the impact it's having on our healthcare system is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jazz. Uh, I understand you're working on a story for tonight's newscast, uh, which will be airing in about uh, 40 minutes on the news hour. Uh, and you were talking to the health minister. Walk me through uh, some of the numbers you were able to crunch today. Yeah, so I've been given, I've just given on the weekend the latest uh, registrations for the people uh, registering the medical services plan. So pretty well everyone's in MSP. Uh, the average for 10 years, annual average increase in MSP uh, participants is about 68,000. The last two years, uh, we've brought it, the average has been 168,000. So at the immigration levels, uh, this is potential impact on the healthcare system. We've got in two years, almost 350,000 more people have joined MSP than were there before. That means uh, that's how many more people potentially will be wanting some health services in the next uh, period of time. That puts enormous pressure on the system, like the likes of which we have never seen before. We, we talked about this pop, the impact of po- population growth and immigration levels on such things as housing. Uh, the housing market, but relatively little attention has been paid on the pressures on the healthcare system. And I note as a related occurrence, I've been tracking the number of people in occupying a hospital bed for some time, because we are definitely experiencing on a daily and weekly basis a significant more crowded hospital than we've ever seen before. It started in the summer, it's continuing. Last night, BC set a record all-time record for the most people ever in hospital, 10,298. And that's partly related, uh, obviously we're in respiratory illness season, but the sheer numbers of people moving to VC on a statistical basis, a percentage of them will get sick at the same rate as people who were already here. And that means that X number of people are now accessing healthcare in much greater numbers than we've ever seen before, whether it's a hospital bed, whether it's a visit to an emergency ward, whether it's just booking to see your family doctor. Just to put it in perspective, in the last two years, if you go by the average roster for a family doctor of about 1,200 patients, to get family doctors just for the people who've arrived in the last two years, just them alone, would be at least 300 more family doctors would be required to meet their demands, quite on top of the 5 million-plus um, people already here. So, again, huge pressure on the healthcare system, which is why we're seeing anecdotally all sorts of stories of huge waiting um, wait times in emergency rooms and to get uh, diagnostic uh, treatment. How do we sustain this? I mean, I, I don't know how we know. how we keep up. I mean, uh, it's all well and good to say we need this many doctors. We don't have them. Uh, it's all good to say it's it's a public health care system, more people paying into it. But I don't know any system that can grow that quickly uh, and sustain and, itself and, and the quality of health care, most importantly. Well, and it's continuing. So I got the stats for the, for the second quarter of 2023. Uh, BC had, a, again, a record, all-time record of 53,313 individuals from countries outside of Canada. So this is not even interprovincial people moving. It's uh, from people outside of Canada, a new quarterly record. You, you multiply that by, by four, it's a quarter. We're talking about another 200,000 people. So that's on top of the 337,000 people the last two years. So this is a huge number. Again, we haven't seen numbers like this ever. Um, And in terms of percentages, you'd have to go back to, I think, 1974 to see a percentage of 3% a year population growth, which, again, huge pressure on the housing sector because there's that many more people need housing and the demand is just going up and the supply is not matching. And now just take a look at the pressure on the healthcare system. Any doctor um, listening, I think, can anecdotally tell just how much more pressure is in the system. And one thing uh, Minister Dix, talking to him today, points out, this underscores the need to hire uh, a lot more nurses and a lot more doctors in a very short period of time. And, and other provinces are experiencing this as well. So we're almost competing with other provinces for this, human, this precious human resource, which has become even more precious with this huge spike in population growth. It's just madness. I don't, I, I don't understand. I mean, uh, the numbers you're given to me, and I just, you know, from housing to health care uh, to swimming to, you know, congestion on our roadways, and I don't want to blame an immigrant. As an immigrant in this country, I'm not here to blame an immigrant. But my God, there has to be just some common sense here. Let's pause for a moment and look at whether the system can absorb uh, that much humanity uh, that quickly. It is. It is a. Uh, it, it's. I can understand the health minister's frustration because he's not the doing at the end of the day. It's the federal no. government and their immigration policy, and they're keeping their foot on the gas, which is absolutely um, uh, appalling. Um, Keith, uh, I know you're working on on this story for tonight's news hour. Look forward to chat with you on this issue tomorrow because it's not going away. Thanks so much. Okay, take care.
Well, during COVID, 29,000 small businesses benefited from the federal emergency loans uh, during the pandemic. The Canada Emergency Business Account, or CBA, helped businesses stay afloat. Now, all CBA borrowers have been going until January 18th, or in some cases uh, earlier than that, to repay the interest-free loan, or it will be converted to a three-year loan from the federal government at 5%, uh, with monthly payments uh, starting immediately. Now, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says many businesses may not be able to meet that deadline. Peggy Lee is one of those small business owners. She owns Pegster's Cafe in North Vancouver. Peggy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, good to be here, Jess. Walk me through uh, what you're thinking uh, these days as the deadline now uh, is fast approaching for January 18. What is going through your mind? Um, unfortunately, mine is 31st of December because I do not qualify for the loan mm-hmm. and I do not qualify for the um, forgiving uh, amount of 20000 And so I just want to confirm, how much do you owe at this point? At this point, we, I have to pay 60000 Sixty thousand. Forty for the loan, yep. and twenty for the forgiving one that I did not even qualify. Are you able at all to 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 pay back some of it? Um, yes, we. Uh, my husband and I we decided that we should pay the forty thousand. We cannot afford to borrow money because we cannot afford to pay the interest part every month. Mm-hmm. So what we have decided to do is to draw out from our um, retirement money. So hopefully the stress will be less and then we will be able to be healthier and work for another few more years, mm-hmm. try to recoup. Yeah. Um, how, many, how much more time will you have to work in your mind just in regards to uh, sort of recouping your retirement fund? Oh, 40000 it's not easy to mm-hmm. recoup, but we will do our best. Mm-hmm. And uh, 20000 I didn't pay because I don't have the 20000 to pay. The best that we could do is to do the forty. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's it been like for you and your husband as the deadline has been approaching? What, are the, what has 2023 been like for you in regards to just... Uh, just knowing that this is coming and the, the date is arriving. Yes, it was um, it was actually very stressful, but eventually, my husband and I decided that you know what, we have to free distress, and we just thank God that at least we have the retirement fund to use for now, because we also know of people who. Dis- who felt that they got no way out. Mm-hmm. And I am actually pretty concerned with other small businesses who think that they got no way out. And, you know, a lot of people commit suicide because they felt that they got no way out. Mm-hmm. For me, when I talk to other customers, other small businesses, when they, I could see that they were so depressed, I always tell them that there is a way out. Mm-hmm. That don't be so depressed. There's a way out. We can go to those bankruptcy um, agents to talk to them and see what you could do. Whether you can pay in smaller bits or um, declare bankrupt. We have to. We don't have to die. We just declare bankrupt. We could do that. What do you think the government should do? Should just there should just be an outright waiver for for the money that's owed in your mind? What, what do you think needs to happen? Here? Okay. My opinion is this. When we owe money, we have to pay. If it is a loan from the government, we need to pay. All we are asking for is when the money was given to us is to help us get through. And when we come rolling back at what our PM always say during that time, we should pay. And then now we can tell that we haven't even reached there yet. We will pay, but we're asking for more time. Mm-hmm. A loan is a loan. We must pay, but please give us more time when our business really picks up. And then the forgiveness one, if it is given to us, then we cannot revert it. 
If it's given, it's given. If I know that it is 60,000, I know I cannot do it. Then I wouldn't even apply. But I applied because it's 40,000 loans, 20,000 is forgiveness, and I got it approved during COVID. So that takes a lot of stress off. But now it's like, no, you're not approved for 40, you are not approved for the forgiveness. I called Siva. And I get through, they will take three days to return me the call. And then they give me a question. What is your gross income for taxes um, in 2018? I said, I don't have the paperwork here. This is a small business. I don't have somebody who is doing all the paperwork for me that I can put you through to her. So she says, okay, you gave it to me. I, I call me back. So I looked for the number. And then I call back. It takes three days for them to get back to me. And they give me the questions. And I say, this is what the figure is. It doesn't match. And I said, well, this is what the, my returns to CRA is. If it doesn't match, I don't know what to do. And they say, oh, no, you call, you go and contact your bank, the bank that gives you the money. And I go to the institution. The institution say, no, they are not the one. They do not know. So I'm being bounced back and forth, back and forth. Uh, what do you think is going to happen on the 18th? I know your deadline was a little different, but uh, do you think there's no, going to be a lot, yeah. of, lot, lot of small businesses who just oh, say, look, yeah. we just can't pay it, come after us, whatever you got to do, but there's no money coming yeah. from us at this particular point? But, yes, we can say that, but deep down in us, we are afraid. We are so scared because every month if they ask you for money, you don't have money. Then they will send us to um, collection department. You know, these are all very stressful. Like month, every end of the month, you get collection department calling you. It's stressful. We are not like big corporations have a lot of guts. And but you're, just... you're not also deadbeats. I mean, as you say, uh, exactly. you're, you're contributing members of society. You work every day, and you're, you're saying is give us more time. Not just you, but thousands of small business owners are saying the same. Yes. Peggy, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.